Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome everyone, thanks for joining us. I'm sitting here with Angus Gorry um, from The Outsiders. It's a pleasure to have him on board. Pleasure to be uh, here, Lucas. Outstanding. Um, Angus, let's start. For those people that aren't familiar with Loose Parts or what The Outsiders do or Camp Hill Osh, um, you give us an overview of what, starting with The Outsiders. Uh, well, I, I'm actually going to flip it and go the other way only because The Outsiders is very much a product of Camp Hill Osh in a lot of ways. Yep. Um, about five or six years ago, we went down in a bit of an exploratory road uh, using playwork practice in a loose parts environment. Uh, we can unpack that as much as you want, but playwork is really just a way of working with children, respecting the value of play uh, and leaving a lot of it up to them to be honest with you, a loose parts environment effectively for us is a, is a junk adventure playground. So they have everything to play, play within that environment from pallets to tarps to chunks of wood. They can climb trees, they can cook on fires, they can use hammers and saws. Uh, the world, the um, sky's really the limit for them. Um, what this did though was bring a lot of um, scrutiny, both positive and negative. And over the years, we've managed to uh, back that up with a lot of research. Um, and this led to people asking us a lot of questions, wanting to visit. Uh, and eventually wanting training in, in exactly what we do. So The Outsiders was really born out of that, where we could take the idea off-site uh, and influence a lot of other people in a lot of other environments. Yes, and um, you touched on it briefly there, um, play work. Can you, uh, I know you could delve into this and we could do a whole podcast on play work. We're not going to do that, heads up. But if you could give like a 30-second overview, history, outcome, go. Well, you're right. It is very hard to summarise. I mean, you can do a PhD in playwork in the UK, exactly. so it's, a, it's an in-depth philosophy. But as I said earlier, it's a way of working with children, but it is a way that recognises, I guess, the evolutionary value of free play. It's not trying to dress up uh, play as leisure or leisure as play, rather. It's not trying to have play for educational outcomes. It's about respecting play for itself, for being play. So play is that innate innate need if you will it is i mean actually i've got a little jotting here that i can do because play work is defined play and i think uh how you define play is pretty critical to being play a play worker but uh for a play worker play is effectively freely chosen personally directed and intrinsically motivated yep. so in that is really the essence of how we view it uh yep. and how we actually roll it out or rather the children roll it out and we're just there to facilitate and support if required yeah, and that ties into something we were talking with a previous guest, Hayana Mosa, about children really lacking that intrinsic reaction to life now because it's so full of this and do that and do that and do this, like after school sport and outcomes and intentional teaching. Yeah. So why do you think this hasn't been... Because I'm aware that in the UK, this is like Playworks completely acknowledged across the board and it's respected. Respected on a much higher level anyway. Yeah. Um, 
obviously play workers in the UK have their own their own uh, issues to deal with legislation at the moment's been quite painful for them but overall there are a lot of play workers in the UK that's enough <laughs> yeah. uh, in Australia um playworks really in its infancy we have some great experts uh, out there we have some play spaces that would you would argue that they use a very playwork lens to how they approach practice um, but yeah we are really just in the beginnings of what could be pretty, something pretty amazing and of been lucky enough to see this firsthand and even when it comes to designing playgrounds I'm thinking like layering in that play work on top all the time because I know it does support that intrinsic play um, it is it is a shame to see that it's not being maybe just because I'm impatient but um, it's awesome to see that you are actually applying it it's not all about theory and you're giving people the content and the practical tools to do that through the outsiders. Is that how the outsiders came about? Yeah, I think the outsiders get a lot of credibility because it's very easy to sit back as a theorist or someone that read or wrote a book once. Um, but we do, when we deliver information, when we teach people um, or really just explain to people how these things work, we can use examples that we did last week uh, or over the year. Um, we do live and breathe this in the trenches, so to speak, and we see it unfolding daily. And it gives us the conviction we need. It doesn't get dry. It doesn't get old. Every new idea or philosophy comes with eight case studies that we've personally witnessed in a short yeah. space of time because kids are pretty amazing. And if you take the time to appreciate that and sit back and observe, you do see some pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, and is this type of play something you were exposed to at an early age? Was it... Um, is that how you played growing up? I actually, and as an adult, like you, you can't appreciate these things as a child. And I think we've all had that dilemma as an adult trying to say, oh, but children, if only you realised. Um, but I think now as an adult, looking back on my childhood, I really appreciate, and I almost would go so far to say I was one of the last generation um, that that word intrinsic truly applied. And I'll just give you a brief example. I grew up uh, in a suburb called Chapel Hill. And we were lucky enough at that time that it hadn't all been subdivided and cut up. So we had people's acreages to run through the back of and green, green belts and Mount Cutha was literally on our doorstep. The difference is that's the environment that was offered, but so was the affordance to actually use it. We came home from school, or we had weekends and we just went, we just did it. Um, it wasn't a matter of are there going to be other children out playing um, by the creek or in the park, it was who are those children going to be? That was a given. Um, and I feel like we just did that without asking. Maybe the generation after us did a little bit less, but they had to ask. And I'd go so far to say the generation now aren't even asking. And that's a problem. Yeah. And to delve into that, why aren't they asking? I don't even realise they know it's afforded to them. Well, it's not afforded to them. If they ask, what would be the answer? Yeah. I live in a very family-friendly suburb and it's rare that you'll see children playing in the street. Yeah. In any real capacity anyway. Yeah, and I think that's where the power of the work that you do um, is so valuable because essentially you're offering um, those experiences we, that they're missing out on now. It's the feedback we get from um, our largely very supportive parent base is they see our environment and they comment, wow, this is the backyard we used to have. Um, and for children that can't play in the street and can't run down to the local creek, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what we're providing for them. Um, in fact, one parent once, and um, this is a bit of a funny story, but um, I don't realise that by trying to um, have a dig, it was actually a bit of a compliment, but there was, uh, you know, every now and again, perception overrules logic. And um, the comment was made that, oh, I'm not sure why I let my kid play here. He might as well be playing in the street. And I was like, oh, thanks, you get it. Yeah, <laughs> yep. 
Um, those little comments are like give me give me strength and motivation. I had one where a parent was like, I've never seen a playground like this in my life. <laughs> and I was like, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Let's do this. It's We're on the right, right track. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you spoke briefly about that perception of parents and reflecting on what they had as a child. Um, and I really appreciate that you've taken the next step and taken it into the research because um, as I mentioned time and time again, we've got to get beyond that nostalgia. We've got to get beyond it's, oh, it's just something you do. It's just a bit of fun. And actually seeing the value and the outcomes for children, going into that resilience, going into um, that securely attached and independent child. So my question for you is that when you have those parents come in and dismiss it, of as just a bit of fun or too dangerous or silly or dangerous even, would you what what's your next step when your parent comes in like that? A lot of dialogue. And and to be honest, these days um, we would prefer not to deal with it we deal with it in that way. We usually take a proactive strike, um, get the information out there in the first place. Um, whether that's through emails, newsletters, uh, parent information nights, um, the less of those questions you have the better. Um, the nostalgia's not insignificant, but that's a scary sort of conversation as well because um, many, many times a parent has asked about tree climbing or cooking by the fire and you can almost always meet those conversations with reflection by simply saying, well, did you ever go camping as a child? Did you ever climb trees as a child? Did you play in your local neighbourhood? And the answer is almost invariably yes. Um, but it's a scary thought, I think, that the more children that aren't doing those sort of activities now, how long am I going to be in this industry before I start asking that question of parents who say, no, that was not something they did when they were children? Or is that the point we need to come to to have the whole 180-degree <laughs> flip and yeah. logic must prevail? <laughs> yeah. I had that experience on the weekend, actually. I was talking at the Catholic Early Education Conference and um, I just asked people where they played. And I've been doing this for years, like seven years, just constantly asking people to reflect and getting beyond that. And um, there was a huge portion, like generally you say, where did you play? Everyone says outside or in a tree. But this one, I had a whole group of young people that just like looked at me really stumped. And they were like inside. So I think it, it is a part or of that. what's through. play? Yeah. <laughs> Why would I do that? Um, but to go back to it, so you're saying for, for those educators listening, the good outcome and an approach you take is um, encourage, you'd say, encourage reflection of, yes. the, of the parents. Um, you would support that with evidence. Yes. And get the, use the evidence. I, I can't stress that. And, and definitely the reason we went down the action research road was to give empirical backing to what we were doing anyway. Um, I think parents... Um, you know, we can be a bit hard on them as educators to be 100% honest because no parent comes in asking these questions with anything but the utmost care and 100%. love for their children 100%. at heart. And sometimes all we need to show those parents is that, oh, no, 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 we're not just doing this. We're doing this with strong intentions and here's why. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's all that's needed. Yeah, and I think um, another one to put there as, as well as reflect evidence and support is to align with the parents' values as well because we want the best for their children as well. And if you're doing that, um, for those people listening, you mentioned the evidence. For those people who don't have access to evidence, where do you think a great place to start, be it videos or if they're wanting to delve and get their geek on, get some research papers? 
Um, that's a big question. There is a lot of information out there. If you want to delve into the world of, for example, playwork, there is an enormous amount of published work out there. Yeah. There's the Journal of Playwork Practice, but if you do start digging, um, there's a huge amount of resources and your good old friend Google can easily help you out with that. Yeah. Um, if you want to look at the value of free play, um, Peter Gray, um, yeah. Psychology Today blog online. Yeah. Um, I, man, that guy can write. Um, I swear something's coming out daily. Yeah. Um, Even just look at his Facebook page for those people out there. And, and that's the value. that He values free play very, very, very heavily. Yeah. And that's as a psychologist and as an educator and someone that's done most of his research in schools. Yeah. And for those people that um, haven't come across a documentary that we've, we both enjoy, um, The Land... With, you think? What's your thoughts on that documentary? Um, the Land is a great documentary if you want to see a very cutting-edge British adventure playground. Um, that puts it into perspective of um, the capacity of children to manage yeah. risk. It's definitely something that inspired partly our movement um, at Camp Hill. Um, it's seen as believing, I guess, yeah. and when you see that children are actually very able and capable from a very young age of uh, managing the risk the way they do. And in fact, learn so much from managing that risk. It, it's in, it's empowering. It's definitely inspiring. Yeah, that was a big takeaway for me as well, just to see how it's manageable. And also, I encourage you, keep watching it. Even, even if you're dismissing how, well, I can't do that because it's a full-on tip and there's a fire in the middle of it. But look at the values, look deeper and see um, that the children are having that fulfilment. And coming from a real challenging um, socioeconomic background as well mm. and having great outcomes. The land setting is, yes, um, having spoken to a play worker that's actually um, done a tour there, um, it is it is a lower socioeconomic area and those children, that's their refuge. Yeah. Um, and to use something from our framework in Camp, in Osh in Australia, my time, our place, that's yeah. where they go to be, belong and become. That's their safe space, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> the risky environment itself. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to delve into that, um, the Osh um the whole beast that is Osh and it seems to be really coming of age and so much demand because obviously parents working longer um, and that requirement for them to be in school longer. Yeah, But what's happened, I observe, is like we've got this great refuge for children to happen and so much freedom within that. Yeah, the affordances of in Osh to really provide these um, play opportunities for children is, is incredible um, and all those play opportunities can be linked directly back uh, to our framework, which is great because we don't have to bend the rules per se yep. to make this happen. Um, and when you consider that uh, the children, a lot of children are spending a huge amount of their uh, only free time because once they go home, it's homework, bed and bath. The weekends are often extracurricular activities. Um, the capacity for Osh to fill that void, and it is a void yeah. in many of these children's lives, um, is critical, absolutely critical. For our listeners out there not familiar with Osh, do you want to break that down for us? Yeah, OSH is just an acronym for Outside School Hours Care. Um, in New South Wales and Victoria, I think they say OOSH, which is Outside of School Care, I think, something like that. Um, long story short, it's, a, it's provisioning care for children uh, with, an, with, a, with actually a curriculum framework these days before and after school. So usually a couple of hours before, a few hours after, and often the vacation care as well. Yep. Um, so a good capacity. The interesting thing about OSH in Australia as well um, as an industry, uh, it's a little bit uh, underappreciated at the moment in the sense that in the last five years, we've actually had a, a doubling of numbers of children enrolled. So 
what comes with a with that increase in children is obviously a much much larger workforce as well that have yep. just been thrown into it. So it is an interesting beast, um, and it does require a lot more support, which I guess is where the outsiders have been um, uh, stepping in and trying to help these new educators in, yeah. in the jobs that they have. And there's an awesome um, a mutual friend of ours, Kylie. Yes, Kylie Brennerly. Um, she's doing some great work in supporting. Um, Incredible, the yeah. OSH. So you want to give a brief overview of that because if people need support in, in their OSH or want to find out more, I think we could steer towards the yeah. Kylie stuff as well. Well, Kylie's the CEO of QCAM, which is yeah. a Queensland Children's Activity Network, and that's the peak body for OSH in Queensland. So as a member, you're privileged to basically touch base anytime you want uh, with advices on legislation or best practice and so on and so forth. Um, QCAN itself, though, is quite amazing in that it's really identified holes in uh, the OSH sector Australia-wide and has more than happily stepped in um, to support other states as well, from uh, Northern Territory to South Australia and so on. So That's outstanding. And um, encouraging research, which is, which is like the means in getting that elevation. Absolutely, yeah. QCAN um, used to do funded action research and once the funding for that um, was cut, they made the very big decision to support ongoing action research through their own budget regardless because they saw uh, the value in that in really holding OSH up as a professional industry. And the work that QCAN has done around actually supporting OSH become more professional um, and thus being more professional, being more recognised as professionals has been absolutely outstanding. Yeah. Um, So Angus, we're talking about reflecting, giving that evidence and supporting. Um, Now, we'll we'll use it little tool here maybe maybe we can use an example of the fire and um, something we've both worked with and passionate about using as a learning outcome but equally as good as it is it also comes with some real challenges um, and the stigma around using fire Um, when we first put our fire pit in it was on every news channel um, the project and in every newspaper because we put a fire pit and my response was well, it's been happening for a really long time. Um, we did have to show a lot of evidence to support it and articulate it, why we were doing it. But maybe you want to start off with, you know, that parent walks in, they see that fire, the kids are actually cooking on it and they're just going, looking at you with that look in their face of a yep. bit of concern for their, their child's safety. So wh- where do you go? Well, you've hit the nail on the head straight away. So um, whenever a parent comes in and challenges us with something, that's okay because there's nothing a parent does generally that isn't just coming from um, the love and, and, and care of their child. So that's fine. And that's exactly how I'd open that conversation. Um, fire is a really great topic and it's something that I do not mind being quizzed on though. Um, it's a good segue into the idea of the risk paradox. And the risk paradox, um, as we describe it to parent parents, is basically the fact that by actually sheltering children from a lot of risks these days, we're setting them up uh, for not knowing how to manage it in the future. Now, interestingly enough, the risk paradox um, doesn't always apply though. So we try to take a situation that for some reason we apply um, logic to. Um, in Queensland, there's no better example uh, than swimming. Now, swimming is really dangerous. People die. It's a real thing. All the time. All the time. However, what do we do about that? Do we prevent children ever going near this hazard? No. We throw them in quite young and we teach them to overcome that risk. By knowing how to manage that risk and overcome it, it doesn't become a hazard or the hazard is infinitely mitigated. 
Fire is exactly the same. It is a very obvious elemental risk. You can see it. You can feel it if you get too close. We teach them how to put it out and so on and so forth. So we can actually apply all the same sorts of control measures, understanding the element and learning how to actually relate with it and interact with it is the key itself into fire not being a hazard. Yeah. Now, there's other countries in the world where this is just a given, and I know people mention Finland all the time because it's almost a bit of a cliche, but often cliches are cliches for reasons. Yeah. Um, Finland has, you know, fire pits in open pits in creches. Yep. And less injuries as, a, as a, an effect of that. But um, from there with the parent, I use a swimming analogy um, and invite them to come sit. Yeah. Because actually sitting around a fire is a very calm experience. And I actually do always joke to go back to the swimming that I'd prefer to supervise 20 to 30 children by myself around the fire any day over yep. that number of children in the pool. <laughs> yeah, you would uh, get shut down. Really quickly. You would. And look, risk is a, risk is a cultural thing. Uh, the perception on risk is cultural. And a really good example of that is another OSH that we work with a lot on the Sunshine Coast. Um, we've been working with them at recently um, because they want fires. Yep. Um, school's not so keen. That's okay. We'll, yep. we'll work on that. Um, but every Thursday, Friday, they'll take 20, 30 kids surfing. Um, so just that's a cultural a perception though because yeah. for them, you know, surfing. Yeah. The kids do it all the time. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and there seems to be this real um, risk-hazard conflict. And I know um, a, a tool for me is that definition from playwork of, um, of how they view hazard. Yeah. So maybe you could go into that as well. And, and it's just a really helpful framing for me to see that remind me that kids are capable and how to support them. Yeah, risk, risk first hazard's a really important one whenever you're doing a, um, a risk assessment anyway. A hazard is usually, um, it's the risk that the child can't identify on their own and manage, and that's a hazard. Yeah, opposed to the definition in, in Australia, which is um, something that may, may cause injury that needs to be rectified straight away. Yeah, <laughs> which a is a huge, huge, huge difference. difference. So um, the easiest example of that that we've given many times is take a tree and climbing a tree. Um, the risk is how high that child decides to climb. A hazard would be a dead branch yeah. um, that if they step on, it may break. And that's something they didn't have the chance to self-assess. So as Playwork is our environment, we're always aware of these things and we are removing hazards yeah. while leaving risk that the children can then uh, interact with and learn from. Yeah, and our responsibility as parents, as educators, a tip when a child's engaging with something, instead of be careful, maybe point out the hazard that they don't see. And I've worked with many educators, they come back to me and say, the rapport that that child and I have now, because I'm not telling them not what to do, I'm not dictating their play, I'm not stealing their accomplishment anymore. All I'm doing is pointing out the hazard if it's the small branch or maybe sandy rocks that they're moving on and those rocks are slippery when they're sandy mm -hmm. you just point out the hazard to them continuously yeah i think children aren't naive to the power of respect and what you've just articulated there is actually giving them the respect that you do trust them but you're just pointing something out and that's often reciprocated yeah and um to extend on something there um when it comes to accomplishment and the progression um, progressive um, confidence and resilience in children um, how does that play into and how do you extend it from the fire scenario into general play? Well, that's a good point. I mean, resilience is a big one because to 
deal with resilience and people talk about the lack of resilience and the knee-jerk reaction to a lack of resilience in children is often to protect them from anything that may um, you know, rub that resilience up the wrong way. But the process of building resilience is to actually go through adverse scenarios and come out the other side. Yeah. So if we remove all those adverse scenarios for the children, we're not going anywhere in, yeah. in that direction. Um, we're just perpetuating the, the situation. So yeah. that, that's a bit of a worry. It's not that we then throw everyone in, in the deep end, but play in itself will actually scaffold those challenges for the children to overcome. The beauty of play is, as well, um, the play frame itself, children have the capacity to enter into and step out of when they choose. So yep. when that challenge is getting a bit much, they have that power. The problem is when we start removing the definition of play or the context of play from uh, challenging scenarios such as climbing or rough and tumble, yep. and all of a sudden that gets very confusing for children because if it's not play, what is it? Do I have the capacity to step in? Do I have the capacity to step out? And that's where confusion happens and confused children, um, yeah, that's yeah. Not, our, not our purpose. So when it comes to fire, Angus, um, and the children engaging, um, what, do, what do you do when there is that incident? Um, if a child does burn themselves or how do you, how do you extend and, and console that parent? Look, we actually haven't had an incident um, that's required um, any serious um, incident report or there's been no serious injury whatsoever. Um, but I don't think that's accidental. I think it's because, A, the children actually really acknowledge that they've been privileged to sit around something that maybe is, is, a, is a privilege. Yep. Um, but there is behind the scenes work that goes in with our staff. They understand, obviously, um, the, the environment that they're supervising and um, that calm demeanour of them sitting around the fire um, reflects on the children and they see that as modelling and they, they, um, they emulate that. Um, but ultimately, um, and this is something that flows through to a lot of risky play um, that we facilitate, if, well, to be honest with you, risky play is a term I don't love. I think there's risk involved in all play. Sometimes yeah. it's social and emotional, sometimes it's physical. Yep. And they often get forgotten because we're all so worried about physical risk, but that's another whole podcast. Um, but long story short, I think when children are actually uh, given an opportunity to step into something they know is a privilege because they're not allowed to do it in so many other environments, they step up yep. and they take it a little bit more seriously and that mitigates a lot of the risk itself. Yeah. And one of the things I've heard you say is like you highlight about that experience and say, well, do you want it to continue? Well, you have to do and that. just leave it. Yeah. And that goes with a lot of risky pursuits as well. And ultimately, uh, the goal of children is pl in play is for the play not to end. Yeah. Um, so they're more than willing to also make those compromises. And, uh, and they're probably not even necessarily conscious compromises, yeah. but they do know how to toe the line. And it's only when you're not giving them the opportunity uh, to take those next steps that they start pushing those barriers a lot harder. Yep. And you mentioned about the challenges from other um, OSHAs and even from the early childhood sector as well. Mm. Um, the challenges when educators want to be that that visionary and provide these experiences for children and they hit that roadblock and it might be your school as a roadblock. Yep. So how did you come get over that and be able to have your fire in the first place? That's a great question and, and, and roadblocks are gonna, going to be present with all services in some form or another. And you know what? Some of them might not be overcomable because stakeholders are stakeholders and we are answerable to them. Um, our fire certainly didn't happen overnight. Our loose parts play area didn't happen overnight. Um, what it took was a lot of conviction 
um, a lot of resilience resilience <laughs> on our behalf. And that, <laughs> a, AKA modeling. Modeling. Um, no, but it was going up with the evidence, with the documentation, um, with the justification. It's not so much arguing, but it's showing that once again, it's it's much like talking to parents. When you, people can see that you've got a strong intentionality behind what you're doing, it's not just to be a bit left field and quirky. It's because you have the best interests of the children at heart. That's the angle we come yeah, from with everything sure. we do. Um, Angus, for those um, parents out there or people that aren't familiar with the term loose parts, um, could you break that down for us um, to give the people understanding and, and go into the value as well? Because um, for, for us, we yes, we build playgrounds, but for me, I love loose parts because they allow the children to put their imprint on the space and have their ownership. And that's simple, simple as it gets for me. Yeah. I want them to have access. I want them to make it their own. But if you can break down what that looks like for you. Yeah, um, that's that's easy. I mean, loose parts, if you want to go from a theoretical point of view, Simon Nicholson did a paper in 1971 which actually went into the theory of loose parts, which has been picked up by people who work with children ever since. But ultimately, um, we can't start the date of loose parts play at that point as long as children have been picking up sticks and rocks and exactly. whatever which i think is as long as there's been children yep. um there's been loose parts and play fire. and fire <laughs> absolutely um so loose parts play effectively is playing which children uh use any objects um to manipulate the environment M most of the time these objects are fairly arbitrary whether they be planks of wood and tarps and uh milk crates and pallets these are the typical sort of things you'd see in a loose parts environment um, but the definition of loose parts is also how an object is used. Some people see a, um, a pot or a pan um, and suggest that's not a loose part because it has a fixed purpose. But that's, that's a very adult perception because a child might pick up that pot and use it as a, um, a ping pong bat or they might dig a hole with that pot. So it's how the object is actually used which makes it a loose part, not the object itself. So a collection of innate reusable multi-purpose yep and recycled to, to, yeah and look recycling is a big point like we do all of our loose parts are repurposed so that's a nice little tick in that box of our framework um but the trick we find is not to overthink it when we collect loose parts if we can't think of a use for it brilliant yeah because the kids will yeah <laughs> definitely definitely it's the the puzzle we put together and um you mentioned also going into and supporting those children's needs and the diversity of needs. And a question for me, because I'm trying to learn a lot more about this right now, is um, supporting the, the genders as well. Because there's a lot of talk in the media right now about um, masculinity being supported mm. or not supported and diversity. Even uh, reading an article about the day um, about um, all boys school wanting to split and, and become a mixed school mm -hmm. because of uh, the opportunity. So maybe break down what you see with your loose parts playground and the development of the children in that. Um, there's a lot to be said about that. And um, this, this was uh, information that came out of our 2016 Action Research Project as well. Um, but as far as gender and actual cultural diversity in the loose parts area goes, um, loose parts are actually pretty great for that. And to use a couple of examples, um, inside our hall, once upon a time, we had the very cliched uh, home corner set up that you'd yep. see in a lot of um, early childhood settings. And that was a small um, pale blue and pale pink kitchenette with a couple of little beds next to it. Um, very, very typical. 
Um, however, not that appealing um, for any but maybe a small group of children and certainly not even big enough for a lot of children to play well, at. Why wasn't it? Appealing, you think? Well, like based on your playwork knowledge. Yeah, look. Ultimately, I think a it was very early childhood based. So yep. as soon as you weren't in grade prep or grade one, it was obsolete. Yeah. Um, it was very tizzy and it 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 screamed little child. Yeah. For starters, and children like to step out of that at a very early age. Um, the loose parts, however, now also what's relevant in children's lives? What cooking are they seeing on TV and all the other mediums that they've got available to them? They've got Jamie Oliver, Heston, Ramsey, maybe, depending on how late they're staying up. My point is that little home corner in the uh, in the corner of the Osh isn't relevant. Now, children like to play at what is real. So what do we see in the loose parts area? We see big industrial kitchens with 12 people cooking. They're yelling orders. They're yelling. They're actually stacking food high. They're gar- Garnishing it with um, twigs and bark and leaves, you name it. Um, They are playing at what they see and the loose parts gives them the advantage to do that. Um, Put the cultural touch on that as well. We had a boy who was using a uh, sports marker cone and a Frisbee to cook something. And um, the question came up from his peers in, in, in um, in the kitchen that they'd created, what's that? And it turned out it was a tagine and that sort of flowed into a conversation that went for about 15 minutes about what's a tagine and where does that come from? Uh, And none of this could have been given from the adults because we didn't know that that child knew what a tagine was. Um, So all of this sort of uh, very, very um, gender diverse, culturally diverse opportunities are available in the loose parts because the loose parts allow the children to turn the environment into how they know to interact with an environment they can make it they can customize it they can personalize it it's something that a fixed set environment just can't do yeah and i hear that it's it goes beyond the stigma of our perception of play and our 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 play bias as parents thinking that our play association is with a park is with a ladder is with a slide yeah so really going on beyond that and and really adding the value for the children. And that play bias, even sort of painting play as something that's very um, uh, childlike, when the more we watch children play, we can contrive a game of Duck, Duck, Goose and make them play it. But once again, that's not free play. If we leave them to their own devices, you'll find the vast majority of play frames are the children playing at the actual extent of their knowledge. They are playing at what is real in context of them at that time. And that's how they're getting an understanding of the world around them, how to interact with their peers, yeah. uh, their not peers, and so yeah. on and so forth. To go in that social interaction with loose parts, obviously being an increased risk-centric, if you will, um, environment, I know... Um, a perception of children with higher needs or behavioural challenges, um, the environment doesn't suit them or they need to be sent with another another teacher's aid. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe go into how, how you overcome that and, and overcome that stigma around and to support those children as best you can. Um, that's quite an easy one. I mean, the loose parts breed engagement. It, it literally fuels it. And engaged children are generally not children that are misbehaving. Children that are bored and don't know what to do are usually the ones pushing boundaries. Um, an interesting part of uh, uh, research we did uh, indicated that the loose parts is actually very, very good at establishing flow theory. Yeah. Um, now, for those that don't know much about flow theory to very very simply summarize it um, basically when uh, flow theory states that when the risk of an area is too great and the capability is too low uh, you fall into the quadrant of being anxious Um, if the if your capabilities are too high and the risk is too small the challenge is too small you fall into the realm of boredom now boredom and anxiety are probably the two things that I could correlate being the most 
stimulating um, uh, moods to be in to cause bad behaviour. Yeah. Um, the loose parts, however, constantly allow children to actually scaffold their challenge versus their capabilities themselves. So yeah. they make structures that uh, they can make and they push their boundaries or they don't. They make something simple. It's, yeah. it's the old, uh, it's still a castle argument. Um, the prep and grade one children might build a very simple cubby versus the grade six children. They're both equally important because they're as complex as they can do at that stage and then they can build upon those ideas. Now contrast this with a typical metal playground with some monkey bars and a slippery dip. Um, I would argue that every playground is interesting to the child the first time it arrives, yeah. regardless of the age. Um, they run up it, they swing on the bars, they go down the slide. However, if that doesn't then stimulate a new challenge, what do they do? They go on top of the monkey bars, they run up the slide and do all these things that are inherently naughty. Yeah. Um, so the loose parts environment does provide that environment that constantly changes. I mean, quite literally, you could ask any staff member or parent in our service and if you walk in and you haven't been in the service for two weeks, it is different. Yeah. It, it looks completely different. It's been completely reinvented by the children several times over. Yep. And I think that um, is really important to go back and, and revisit because I constantly think of that that challenge and boredom. So just give us another summary. So parents can have a takeaway and think about the child. If they're bored, this is going to be the outcome. And if they're too challenged, they're going to be anxious. Mm. So um, do you want to give some examples to paint a picture for the educators and parents listening? Um well, segregated age groups are one of my bugbears and that's why we do have a multi-age play environment. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a playground I visited once that had an age limit of um, eight. Yep. Um, they had to be eight years old to play on it. Um, but you have to ask yourself the question, at what point does everyone turn eight and all of a sudden are gifted with exactly the same capabilities, whether it be um, uh, physical capability or you know, social, psycho emotional. social and emotional capability. So we are plucking these numbers fairly arbitrarily out of the air, not based so much on skill. Yep. Um, so those fixed environments, yep. I would say, promote that anxiety and boredom often. Um, by the way, we were talking very pessimistically there, like they went to that playground and didn't have the skills. What if they go there as an eight-year-old and completely have yeah. have it all over that playground? Yeah. That's boring, very yeah. boring. And yeah, so you're going to be talking to both of those children at some point in that play session. Yeah, and uh, I invite um, the listeners there to reflect on <laughs> any time you hear um, age-appropriate Mm. You're like, what does that mean anyway? Yeah, it should be, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of argument around that, but age appropriate probably uh, shouldn't be, tr you know, trumping in skill appropriate or, yeah. 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 Or, so yeah. when it does come to those behavioral challenges, when it comes to the outcome of being bored and um, or too challenged and being anxious, obviously the byproduct of that is behavioral challenges and incidents. Maybe you can go into um, your experience as your services developed over the years. Yeah, look, that's a good one. And it's definitely the sort of evidence we need to even um, push ourselves further to keep going. Um, but long story short, since we've gone down the loose parts road, and particularly loose parts road with a playwork approach of supervising, which is largely um, standoffish, to be honest with you, we're there to support, but we're not there to put an adult stamp on everything the children are doing um, but since we've gone down that road the numbers of children that have actually enrolled in Camp Hill have doubled um, and our injuries have halved that alone is enough for me but on top of that our behavior management is a lot lower as well I mean do we ever have something that needs to be uh, scaffolded obviously they're, yeah. they're children and there's a lot of them but overall um, the more severe problems that we've had are gone we, we often get asked um 
by other services sort of like, well, how do you prevent um, in that looser sort of environment, uh, you know, children running? And I'm just like, they, they what? Um, we just don't have it. Yeah. They're, they're there. They're having fun. They're engaged. And um, that's definitely enough for us to keep going. So just to be clear, you're not saying they don't run. <laughs> they <laughs> no. just get told they not they don't they're not I mean, told what I mean to do leaving the premises yeah like actually running away from, oh, the, from right. the service Run away, yeah, that's this, a big difference yeah, yeah this is this is a this, this is a problem for some services with particular uh behavior management children who they really really need to keep an eye on yeah um but i would argue like why are they running what aren't they getting that's yep. causing them to have to to have to run percent from a um playground design standpoint if Someone calls me up saying we need to raise the fence because children are getting out. I said you need to sort your playground out to make children want to stay there. Mm. Or even um, not not just being playground centric, but where's that secure attachment with your educators to see them as uh, peer and support, so you're not trying to get out of there. Yeah. Um, and another big challenge we see, and it, and it gives a great framework and some some good stories. I know you've got um, and perception stigma around rough and tumble play. Because I know that's one of the categories of those risk and play, which we want to support, but um, sometimes it's really, really challenging for like you know that reactive culture, the online culture of like if there's a little incident, all of a sudden the centre's names getting plastered yeah. across the internet, and to move away from that, they don't want it. But I know as being one of six boys growing up, rough and tumble play is absolutely yeah, integral. It is. And um, rough and tumble play and obviously particularly boys are drawn to it. But uh, we definitely have girls that enjoy some rough and tumble play as well. But it is a very misunderstood play type. Um, but it is a play type that we do facilitate. And by facilitate, I don't mean that we sort of actively say, let's go have some rough and tumble play. Yeah. But when it does naturally eventuate, which it absolutely will, I guarantee it, if you step back and just observe, um, we will let it roll. Now, to explain that, though... Um, just, to, just to jump yeah, in there, sure. um, why is it important, though? We should start oh, there. Yeah, no. What's the outcome of this well, and why do we support it? There's a lot. And a lot of those outcomes um, stem to actual brain development. Um, rough and tumble play between fathers and sons and then peers um, actually creates a chemical in the brain called oxytocin, which is critical for developing uh, bonding and empathy. Yep. Um, two words that you're all of a sudden going, oh, bonding and empathy with rough and tumble playing. The coin sort of starts dropping. It also uh, allows us to start developing an understanding of more subtle social cues. Um, the reality is that we get children entering care and some of them have a very, very refined sense of social and emotional uh, self-conduct. Um, others, and I hate to say it, but particularly boys do not. They need a somewhat blunter tool yep. to start honing that understanding of subtle social and physical cues. Um, and for them, that's rough and tumble. Yeah, um, really blatant lesson. Yep. It's like, if you yank on my arm and I say, oh, next time I yank on your arm and you say, oh, Oh, well, yeah. I know what that's like. And it's context. It's almost, once again, back to the fire. Like, it's very, very intangible to say to children that if you do that too hard, it will hurt until they 100%. at least have a clue yeah. what that will actually feel like. And that's also empathy developing. Yeah. It's one of my big challenges when going in and talking about rough and tumble play or learning in general. And then we give, we, we say with one hand that children learn through their sensory senses and their sensory beings to understand the world. And then we give them these concepts are completely intangible. We're like, oh, don't go in his zone. It's his. And Zach's looking at you like, where the hell is it, buddy? I can't see it. I can't touch it. Yep. I can't do anything, but that's how you want me to learn. That's how you want me to learn. And and once again, to articulate the, the value and the power of play, 
it's when that we start removing the word play from rough and tumble that the issues happen because to come back to that idea of the play frame being something children can enter and exit at will yeah um if we can actually sell them or just acknowledge and usually that's just in our actions as play workers by sitting back and not intervening the children sit back and go oh this must be okay therefore it is play um, they can cease that when they want. However, once we dress it up as that's uh, fighting or that's violent um, and then a child finds himself somewhat spontaneously in that environment, doesn't feel that he can exit that on a whim, that's where they may lash out or feel other feelings like anxiety and so on and so forth. So maintaining that idea that play is play is very, very important for rough and tumble. Yep. You give someone a minute and an opponent and it... Yeah. yeah, it changes the dynamic. It it's changes all. the dynamic of that very, very, very quickly. Yeah, you've organ. You've got a uh, fight club. You well, yeah, you do, and <laughs> you, you've got also an outcome. Yeah, outcome. Play, play for children doesn't often have an outcome. It's just to continue it. Yeah, and when it comes to those outcomes, and and we know you're contributing to resilience, more independence, more em- empathy. Um, how are you doing that? How are you collecting that evidence to show your families? How we, what, what does that look like? Numerous ways. I mean, part of the industry in itself is that staff do take a lot of documentation and um, that documentation might be part of their personal journals. It might be part of our discussions every afternoon. Um, in many, many ways we do that. We provide our parents with information through newsletters, through emails, through a Facebook page for our service that we have. Um, and we'll document these ideas, share other bits of information that support those ideas and so on. Um, the most valuable part of the documentation for me personally is actually what the staff see because the staff being very comfortable in the place that they work in is pretty critical uh, to any play work environment and it's we've had this discussion with many services before get the team on board before you go bullheaded down the road of wanting to do all this amazing stuff because yeah. it won't work yeah. without that support um, we've spoken about the, the gender and the the uh, how you do have an increased ratio, but something I observe of your team is, and one of your real strengths is that you have such diversity in in the types of people you have. I go to a number of services and we see um, same demographic, same experience, and we're not really offering that social diversity. We're looking at resources and what they we supply them as as being diverse, but we've also think we've got to be quite critical in the social interactions we we offer as well within our staff yeah no for sure and with 26 staff um, on our books uh, we have some amazing skill sets and I mean that's quite an exciting part of the HR um, and, and it's challenging as well but um, the outcomes for the children are a lot richer um, with 26 different points of view and ideas and uh, ways that they work with the children um, and we, we encourage that. Uh, it, by no means do we even expect people to all behaviour manage exa- yeah. exactly the same because guess what? That's not the real world. Um, no. Children will need to work with different personalities and um, we can provide that for them. Yeah, and that diversity. We've got um, Todd in your team, early childhood. We've got Izzy who's semi-professional basketball player yeah, randomly he, he, or professional. He, he loves it, when, he'll, I, he'll he loves it when I drop that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, and you got Lucy who's, who's got fine arts degree. Yeah, Bachelor of Fine Arts in painting, yep. Yeah. That's, quite, that's, quite, a, quite a successful artist on the side as well, yep. Well, I didn't know that. I'll have to check it out. Yep. Um, and from there, that's also your um, – the outsiders are also – 
Yeah, well, um, that, come from internally well, from Camp Hill. That's right. That, those three plus myself make up the Outsiders team, and I guess we've sort of been leading that uh, playwork charge in our industry, which has um, allowed us to branch out and work with a lot of other services. Really exciting. Um, when we first started, it was very much the idea to work with other Oshers. Yeah. Um, but this year, it's been increasingly about working with other schools. Um, who are understanding now that there's something missing in these children, uh, these children's day, um, and are looking at creative, uh, innovative ways to provide that. Which, on, ironically, is um, not that innovative. It's actually taking a massive step back <laughs> yeah. um, to how children just innately play. But hey, if that's the realization we have to come to, great. Yeah, and you, are you seeing an increased uptake of of ushers and also schools? Yeah, there, there has been for a, for a bit now, and um, that increased uptake is. Um, really heartening and it's definitely motivating to continue yeah well i personally really really appreciate the work because the more you get your message out there one you give me great evidence <laughs> for, for my my practice and, and me moving forward and actually trying to convert these parents and parent information nights and teaching educators so i really thank you for that and it's just tireless work that you and the team do it's really fantastic um I appreciate, and I, I'm so excited about what that's going to look like in five years' time. So are we, because um, we've got ideas, but <laughs> yes, um, a lot of them. Yeah, I'm the pro loose parts guy, and that kind of scares me. No, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd like to just thank you from all on behalf of all our listeners, um, on behalf of all the people you've gone out there and trained as well. Um, and the people you continue to work with throughout schools because I know it's a big beast we're coming up against with the regulated and very institutionalised um, on schools, but we are seeing the change. And, and a lot of the change, you can the, the listeners can be that change as well. Go out there, talk to your schools, uh, mention that you want more diversity in play experience, you're, you're over the monkey bars and slides type of thing. And, um, and that's how we're best going to support our communities moving forward because you remember these these communities now that you're supporting in this this OSH, all these children, they're going to become our community. Yeah. So if we can support the community ongoing far into the future and their families and their families, um, that's the huge work you're doing. You're impacting hundreds of thousands of children. Yeah, absolutely. Indefinitely. So I so, so appreciative of that. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. And um, I really hope that our listeners got some value out of that, some practical takeaways, because I think that's where your real strength is, like you mentioned, getting that practical, the theory and outcomes. So this is Angus Gorry and I'm Lucas. And thanks so much for listening to Play It Forward. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to learn more, subscribe. Um, in the show notes, you'll also find all the information that we've covered in this, in, including um, some, some links to the films. Um, if you want to know and learn more about um, what Angus Guri does, um, please head over to theoutsidersplayadvocates.com and also on Facebook, The Outsiders Play Advocates. Um, also, Camp Hill After School Hours Care. Um, that Facebook's amazing for some content and inspiration as well. So thank you so much for listening and we look forward to chatting soon.